At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a world full of information, literally at our fingertips. Among all the claims of truth in the world, it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. This is often the case when it comes to the Christian faith. Do we understand the truth of what we believe, and can we articulate it to others? In The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, we'll use the affirmations of the Apostles' Creed as a guide to teaching us the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Join us each week as we affirm the foundational truths of Christianity so we can stand on the bedrock of God's truth and share that good news with the world. If you have your Bible, please make your way to Psalm chapter 33 this morning. Psalm chapter 33. Now, what we love to do is take a few minutes and introduce where we are or where we are in a series or in a topic or whatever it might be, and then get into God's word. And yet with this particular series, as we are working through what's called the Apostles' Creed, we need to do some background work as well. So uh, typically we'll jump in within four or five minutes and get into that text, but I'd ask for your patience this morning because we're going to spend a little bit of time to talk about a few issues that I think are very relevant to both our message, this series, and our culture in each of our lives today. So I'm going to do a little bit of teaching here for a minute, if that is all right with you, to get us into this topic. I think uh, it will help us understand ultimately what God is wanting to say to each of us today. Last week we started our new series, The Essentials, Why Truth Matters. And truth seems more elusive than ever. Would you agree? It just seems so elusive. Some would say there are about 8 billion different versions of truth walking around the planet right now. And with all the awareness, we have different cultures and different contexts and different conditions. A lot of people aren't willing to even admit or understand or recognize that there is such a thing as what's called absolute truth. Uh, many call it a myth. Absolute truth, if you were define, uh, to define it, it is whatever conforms to fact or actuality. It's whatever is valid regardless of parameters and context. It is fixed. It is unchangeable. It is permanent. So in a society like ours that is hypersensitive to our individual sensibilities and experiences, most like to just land on a little idiom instead. Most just like to land on saying, I'm not sure there is a such thing as absolute truth, but you know what? You do you. That's what we hear. You live your truth. So just live your truth. Don't worry about trying to conform to any reality outside of the one that you create for yourself. Unless that is you doing you gets in the way of me doing me. Then we have a problem. Which always ends up happening, by the way, because there is nothing more destructive to humanity than self-centeredness. Uh, the you being all about your truth, it pretty much perfectly captures our narcissistic culture built on self-idolatry. I mean, that's what's all over the place. That's what's uh, the result of this rise of social platforms and otherwise. It's just a culture full of self-idolatry and narcissism to say, hey, you just be about you. You live your truth. You, you just do what's best for you. Be true to yourself. Maybe you've heard the story of the scorpion and the frog. It's an old fable I came across this past week. Let me share it with you. A frog was hopping along the shore of a river looking for a place to cross. 
He came up to a scorpion sitting on the shore, and the scorpion said, Hello, frog. Looks like you're going to cross the river. I need to cross it too. Would you mind carrying me? So the frog says, No way. If I give you a ride, you'll sting me and I'll die. So the scorpion says, That doesn't make any sense. If I sting you and you die, I'll die too. I can't swim. The frog thought for a moment and said, that's true. That would be crazy. So go ahead and climb on. So the scorpion climbed on the frog's back and off they went to cross the river. About halfway across, the scorpion raised its tail and stung the frog. Just before they both drowned, the scorpion says, aren't you going to ask why I did that? The frog replied, you do you. Living your truth, you being all about you, just living out your nature, that ends up killing your own soul. That's what the result is. These perspectives our culture buys into, they end up getting crushed under the weight of their own claims. Take relativism. This idea that there is no universal standard to determine whether something is true or false. You just do you. Whether something is right or wrong, But relativism ends up being what's called a fallacy, an untruth, because it fails this law of logic called non-contradiction, or subjective truth. Take that one, truth based on your perspective, your feelings, your opinions. That ends up getting crushed under the weight of its own claims. Some things can't be true for you, and at the same time, false for me. What is true is that while none of us have a perfect grasp on all truth, we can know some things. The sun warms the earth. Gravity is real. We need oxygen to breathe. Having teenagers will shorten your life. (laughs) Jesus will return before the Lions win a Super Bowl. Like absolute (laughs) truth. But here's the point, when it comes to faith, and everybody has faith in something, Christians hold to a set of claims that we say are absolute. That is what creeds do. A creed is a collection of statements that Christians hold as absolutely true. They summarize and affirm the Bible's truth claims. Christians believe that God is the source and origin of the knowledge of truth in every area of life. Now, remember the conversation between Jesus and Pontius Pilate uh, just before his crucifixion. Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So if we want to know what truth is, we listen to the voice of Christ. Pilate's response, Pilate said to him this famous question, so many philosophers and other people have shared it since, what is truth? Pilate was having a conversation with truth incarnate, literal truth incarnate, and yet he still had no idea what truth actually was. He was breathing on him, and he had no idea. His mind was deceived, and that's the power of deception. The ruler of this world, Jesus calls him Satan. The ruler of this world is the deceiver, and he is called the father of all lies. And this is why truth matters. It is the difference between life and death, salvation and condemnation, heaven and hell, grace 
and judgment. Now, the Apostles' Creed, it was written a few hundred years after Jesus to help ground new Christians in the faith. They would actually recite it before they were baptized into the faith. And so it was meant to be, this is our truth claims. This is what we understand about our faith. And here's the phrase we want to look at this morning as we continue on. It says, I believe in God. Here's our phrase, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Now, the second part, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, that also brings up another issue we need to deal with before we get into Psalm 33. And that is when you're reading these old creeds, some people will say, I don't like the language. I think we need to update it because why is God referred to as Father? Why is he never called Mother in the Bible? This is a massive, massive issue in our culture today. We live in an age of inclusivity and the desire for equality. Many say that calling God Father was just another way to use traditional language that was built on an ancient patriarchal society to subjugate women. So shouldn't we come up with something less masculine and more gender neutral? Don't we want to avoid anything that could associate our faith with misogyny? or misogynistic tendencies. And since God is neither male nor female, doesn't using gender-specific pronouns wrongly describe his nature? But before we jump on the progressive feminist theology bandwagon, let me take a minute or two just to remind us why the Bible refers to God with masculine terms. Most ancient Near Eastern societies, those who were around in the days of the Israelites, and honestly, many today, they have a goddess as the main religious figure, or at least a complement to a prominent male deity. So in Canaan, for example, her name was Asherah, or in Egypt, her name was Isis, or in Babylon, her name was Tiamat. You'd expect those societies to have more equality, maybe even view women as superior based upon the goddesses that they worshipped, but it was usually the opposite. But unlike so many other religious systems, the Bible speaks of God, who is spirit, as father to help answer an all-important question that really human beings have been asking for as long as we've been around, and that is, who is God? Christianity has an entirely unique answer to who God is. The Bible says that God is father, son, and spirit. One God, three distinct persons. We call this doctrine the Trinity. No other religion or philosophy gives this answer. God is referred to as Father to help us understand the relationships within the Trinity, to help us understand more of who he is. In the New Testament, Paul and Peter both use the phrase, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This wasn't invented by misogynistic leaders of the church trying to suppress women. This comes directly from Jesus, who constantly, by the way, turned male-dominant cultural norms on their head and demonstrated what it truly means to understand the full equality and value of men and women. That was Jesus. He is the lover of all and savior of all. He is uh, he is God in flesh. He is the word of God and the light of the world. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. And he refers to God as his father because it communicates something about their relationship. 
And then he tells his disciples, his followers, to do the exact same thing. He instructs them to do this when he says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who is in heaven. Was he confused? Jesus didn't call Father, uh, God Father as a way of excluding feminine qualities or elevating masculinity over femininity. He did it to communicate that God is not distant or impersonal but imminent and close and intimately connected with his people. Think about it. As father, God redeems his children through the work of his son. Redemption isn't what an impersonal God as creator would do. Redemption is what a father who loves his children does. This is what differentiated God in the Old Testament, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob from all the other ancient gods and the goddesses of the world then and today. He is deeply personal. He knows his family and is known by his family through faith. Now here's another reason. God as father created the universe as something that was separate from himself. In other religions, the mother goddess gives birth to the world, which makes the world an extension of the deity's body. So calling God mother implies that God and the world are made of the same stuff, that there's virtually no distinction. This is where the idea of mother nature comes from. This is why there's nature worship in our world today. So the God of the Bible refers to himself as father so we can better also understand his relationship with creation. Now, the fact that God is father does not change the clear message of scripture or the gospel of Christ. It enhances it. Uh, which this gospel, this good news, does not allow space for one ounce of misogyny or misandry or race-driven phobia or age-driven phobia or economic-driven phobia or any other form of oppressive human depravity. All of that to say playing games with the Trinity in God's own self-revelation by changing pronouns doesn't lead us into some place of harmless clarity that makes our message more palatable for the the culture. God as Father is not simply a language thing. It is a Trinity thing. To redefine the nature of the Trinity is to abandon the God of Christianity. And I hope we understand that because that's ultimately what these creeds are meant to do is teach us the truth of who God is and what his word communicates so that we can understand false narratives and false teachings. So truth matters And God the Father Almighty is maker of heaven and earth. And because of who he is, this is where we go on our psalm this morning, because of who he is, there is no one better to give your heart and worship to. So as you turn there, if you haven't already, to Psalm 33, we'll see that sometimes this is exactly what the songwriter is trying to do. He highlights who God the Father Almighty is to stir up our affection towards him, to stir up our passion towards him. Sometimes we just need reminded of who God is and what he has done to stir our emotions towards him, not emotionalism, but just to to turn our hearts towards him once again so it results in praise. So it results in a response. So why worship God? Why worship this Father Almighty? First, because his power is seen in making all things by his word. Let me read the psalm through verse 9. It says, Shout for the joy in the Lord. O you righteous, praise befets the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. 
play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Now Psalm 33, it's one of the few Psalms that does not have a title and that's most likely because it was meant to be a response to Psalm 32, which was written by King David. And Psalm 32 basically says, blessed are those who have been forgiven by God. And the last words of Psalm 32, if you just went back one verse, verse 11 in Psalm 32 before our psalm this morning, it says, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That's almost identical to the first verse of Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous, praise befits the upright. Befits the upright. Because God alone is able to bless you by forgiving you, That's Psalm 32. God alone is worthy of your worship because of Psalm 33. Now, the story of the Bible is basically this. The story of the Bible says if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you understand that you, apart from Christ, are under the weight of sin, which just means missing the mark. It means there's times in our lives where there's been rebellion against God's holy standard. And the scripture makes it clear that all have sinned. So if we understand who we are apart from Christ and then what Jesus Christ has done, that God in perfection, though he never sinned, became sin so that we might live, so that we might be redeemed, so that we might be forgiven by God Almighty, so our soul would live eternally with him. If you fully understand that, basically what the psalm is saying is our only response is worship. I mean, it's thanksgiving. This is what it is. So in the Lord, he says, respond with shouts for joy in the Lord. It means that the Lord is the reason for all the worship. It's all about him. It's all because of him, our joy, our praise, our thanks, our melody, our song, our music. And notice what kind of voice we offer to the Lord. Did you notice that in the text? It says we offer a loud shout. What do you think of that? One person (laughs) understands a little bit. Not all worship, friends, is meant to be contemplative and reflective. We know this. But, but notice, quiet is not the only way to show reverence. Reverence has more to do with the posture of your heart than it does the volume of your lips. It's okay to be reverently loud sometimes. God's people... They are commanded here in the, in the psalm. They're singing this together and they are called into passionate, responsive, emotional worship, which is not the same thing again as emotionalism. This is not manipulation. This is an honest reaction to an absolute truth. If you know that you've been forgiven by God Almighty for eternity and that he holds your soul in his hands and that you are cared for by him and now you are his child through faith, every sin gone, as far as the east is from the west, then what's our response? It's worship. 
And so that's what he says to do. He says, when you come together, worship because you are blessed by being forgiven. Man, it does not take me long as a father of teenagers or even a reflection in the mirror to realize what I've been forgiven of. And I think the same is true of you. And so in verses four through nine, it then reminds us that God's word is upright. That means his motives are pure. He does, he, he does everything with faithfulness. Everything he creates shows his steadfast, unwavering, unfaltering love. What he commands, that's what occurs. Everything he speaks, it comes into being. These verses are an echo of creation. And look at verse 6. It says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Now, the, the Greek translation of that and what was called the Septuagint of the Old Testament, it was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it was a word called logos. And the Apostle John picks up on that exact same word, the word logos, in John chapter 1, his gospel. We're going to look at this text next week, so I'm not going to dive into it now other than just to read that verse. It says, in the beginning was the word, same Greek word, logos, the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He, and now we understand the word is a person, it is Jesus, he was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So the Father Almighty is the creator, and he created through his Son. But what about the Spirit? We'll look back at our verse 6 as well. By the word, Logos, Jesus, of the Lord, Yahweh, Father, the heavens were made. And by the breath, which is a common reference to the Holy Spirit. Of his mouth, all their host. The triune God speaks, and it is so. And because of who he is, all the world will stand in awe. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I shared with you that I went on a hike in the Grand Canyon. And when I first went to the National Park and walked up to the overlook and just looked at the expanse for the first time, what do you do? I mean, my response was when I got to the south rim and looked over the railing and looked into that expanse, I just went, wow. That's all I could say. And I have this habit, I like to people watch. I don't know, maybe it's a sickness, I don't know, but it's something I do sometimes. And so after I looked at it, I was curious, like, what do other people, when they walk up to that ravine and see it with their own eyes for the first time, how do they respond? And so I watched for a few minutes. Man, woman, child, everybody who came up, every single person, some of them stood there with their mouth open, some spoke some words. Everybody under 40 grabbed a picture and a selfie real quick, and then they're like looking at their phone more than they're looking at the scenery. It's like, why look at the picture here when you've got the whole thing right here? And so they're doing that, but the, but the point is that every single person, you didn't need to coach them on some response. You didn't need to, you didn't need to say, hey, now when you come up there, now, now, you need to, now you need to go wow, or now you need to make a face, or now you need to do something. It's like they walk up and they physically respond. And this is what the text is saying, is when we understand and comprehend 
the vastness, the holiness, the majesty of God himself who sits enthroned, constantly being worshiped. And we recognize that he is imminent and close and sent his son. And when we recognize who we were and who we are and where we're going, we can't help but respond. That's what it's saying. That's worship. So why worship God and no other? Because his power is seen in making all things by his word. Second, because his wisdom is seen by carrying out eternal plans. His wisdom is seen by carrying out his eternal plans. Look at verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from the heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. God pops the plans of the world like a balloon. All the planning, all the plotting, all the scheming. If the Lord wills it one way and you are trying to change the current, you will be swept away. It would be like standing at the bottom of Niagara Falls and deciding that you're going to put all the water back at the top. You're not going to be able to do that. You're just going to get swept away with the water and all of you and it ends up in Lake Ontario. Here's what we know of God's wisdom. That his counsel is absolute. It is fixed. It is unchangeable. And what he's saying here is that he's making a heritage. He's bringing together a people. He's from, from, from every tribe and every tongue and every language, there will be people who respond to him in faithfulness. And in the New Testament, that means responding to Jesus in faithfulness, in faith. And as he gathers people from every corner of the earth, we know according to 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, but you, all of you in Christ, every person in Christ, Jew or Gentile, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's like the exact same thing that the psalm is saying. He has a heritage and his people worship him in response. In verse 10 of that same chapter, chapter 2 of 1 Peter, it says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you, were, you, once you had not received mercy, you were not forgiven, but now you have received mercy. It's the same theme. It's the same principles being reiterated throughout the story of God. And did you notice in our psalm, it says that God looks down from the heavens. He's not looking at people through some lens of a satellite. He reigns over his creation. He is not beside it or below it. He sees the whole field of play. He sees everything that's happening. He fashions the heart, it says. We don't know which hearts he softens and which ones are hardened, but he does. He knows our deeds. He knows our thoughts. 
He knows what's in the dark. He knows what is. He knows what could be. He knows what will be. He knows the end from the beginning. He's not stuck in real time wondering what's going to happen next. He's out in front. But what does the world do? It doesn't worship him because it does not know him or trust him. It doesn't trust him because the nations trust in their own strength. And yet we know that the army will fail. That bank, that will fail. That reserve, that will dry up. That relationship, it won't deliver. The world endlessly pursues salvation, endlessly pursues security by their own efforts and by their own means. But all they find, and we do the same sometimes, we pursue security through all these other means and all of those means end up in chaos. We've got more missiles than you, so we're safe. We've got more money than you, must mean we're safe. We've got more influence than you, so we're safe. Friends, the only safe place is in the hand of the Father Almighty. That's it. There's no other place. The human soul can chase after security in every other relationship, every other vice, every other place, every other space. And all you will find is empty chaos. Only in the hands of God are we safe. Jesus put it this way, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. I mean, if you are in Christ, you need any more security than the words of Jesus Christ who's risen from the dead. His word is true. It's absolutely true. So what if we ask the Lord, what would you have me do today? Instead of all the stress and anxiety, I'm not sure where I'm headed. I, I can't see around the corner. I don't, I don't know what's coming. We can instead acknowledge, God, you see the end from the beginning. You know what's going to happen today. You know where every step is going to take me. You know what's going to happen in every relationship I interact with today. So instead of me just trying to figure it all out, it, it, would it be okay if I just sat here for a moment and heard from you and said, I'll follow you today. Help me to follow the ways of Jesus. Why worship God and no other? Because his power is seen in making all things by his word. His wisdom is seen in carrying out his eternal plans. And lastly, briefly, his love is seen in delivering those who hope in him. Verse 18, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. And then finally, the church responds in verse 20. The people of God say, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. He doesn't work through our strengths and schemes. He works through those who fear him and those who trust him. Remember in Scripture, in John chapter 4, Jesus heals the official's son who was ill. This official was coming to him and saying, please, please come with me. My son, he's dying. Would you heal him? The official asks him to come home and Jesus says to him, I don't need to come. Go back home. He'll live. The man didn't even make it home and he heard from one of his servants that his son had been healed. 
So he asks, well, when was he healed? And the servant said he was healed yesterday, which was the exact time when Jesus said he'd be okay. The official didn't see it. The official didn't know it, but the official believed it. The point is that Jesus was working even when no one knew it. It's something we sing all the time in that one song from Leland when we say, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop working. He's always working. And right now in your life, you don't see it yet. You're not around the bend. You don't know what's coming, but he's way out in front of you. He's already setting things up for his glory through your life and you can't see it. But your job's simply to walk in faith. And so really the Christian life, it is a life of dependence. We dependently follow the ways of Jesus, listening to the Holy Spirit, and he guides us. And we don't need to worry. We don't need to be anxious. We don't need to take a bunch of sleeping pills because we can't figure it out. We just look at the Lord and say, okay, I don't see it, but I know you're working. We might not know when the famine will end, but he's working. We might not know when we'll get out of this mess, but I know he's working. We might not see how he can make anything out of the mess that we're in, but we know he's working. No one knew what Jesus was up to when he was arrested on the Mount of Olives. No one could understand what he was doing when he was carrying his own cross. No one saw the plans of the Lord when he was committing his spirit to the Father on the, on the cross. No one really comprehended what happened when he said, it is finished. Everybody thought the ending would be different. Everybody was shocked at his death. Everybody was shocked at his resurrection. Everybody was shocked at his ascension. That's us in the in-between. So what do we do? We wait For the Lord, he is our help and our shield. And we worship on our best days and our worst days. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. So we wait and we worship and we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Dear Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of who you are. Thank you for the reality of who you are, Father, Son, and Spirit. So Father, we worship you and we praise you because of what you have done. And Lord, I pray that if there be anyone here today or online that they have not yet placed their trust in Jesus, they're they're still independent of you. They're trying to navigate life and make their plans, and make it around the corner, and just make it to the next step, but without your comforting security and care. Ultimately, Father, those strategies, those philosophies, the idea of uh, us just being us, we doing we, me being me, you doing you. Father, we want to be a new creation, created in Christ Jesus. And you've made us new through faith. So for those who have not received, I pray as we close today, if they're online, that they'd say, I want to talk about Jesus. Or if they're here, they'd come up front and say, I want to give my life to Jesus. The beginning.
beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the word and the light. And when we are in you, we are secure. So remove every thought of insecurity. May we see it as deception this morning, Father. May we place all of our cares upon the throne and the shoulders that can handle it. Yours. So Father, we praise you for being good, for being mighty. We love you and we want to leave this place full of faith and full of courage to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.